Take your Bible, join me in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Today we're going to keep looking at the church a little bit, kind of wrap up uh, kind of the, this disjointed mini-series we've been doing on the church, a little church checkup. And we, we've seen who the church is, it's, it's those who've been called out by God. We've seen what an exemplary church looks like last time we saw that, uh, it's a church that has faith, hope, and love. It's a church that is waiting eagerly for Jesus. It's a church that is receiving the Word and sounding it forth. And today we're going to look particularly at Paul's ministry. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about his own ministry in chapter 2. And in looking at Paul, we're going to see what God wants us to know and how He wants us to live our lives as Jesus' disciples. So let's read... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after he had, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you also know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, you are righteous, you are good. You never change. And we rejoice today that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word. So, as your people now, we ask, as we look at your word, that we might see you. That we might see your son, Jesus. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we pray that you might conform us to your will. That you might convict us of sin. That you might make even more real to us today, your love for us, that we might behold your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does the ministry of Paul teach us about how we should be living? We see in verse 1, Paul writes that his coming to these believers was not in vain. It was not useless. So before we go any further, we, we need to consider that. We We find Paul, and I'm going to take you a little back to to Acts 17. That's where we find Paul's visit to the church in Thessalonica. And 
when he was there, he ministered to uh, the people there, but there were some Jews there in the city who had not believed in Jesus. They, they did not believe Paul's message. They did not believe the gospel. And they became particularly hostile. Hostile to Paul. Hostile to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And they ended up dragging a believer by the name of Jason before the city elders. But what happened there was Paul decided to leave town so that it would make it easier for the, the Christians in Thessalonica going forward. That may have worked for a little bit, but it didn't work for a long time. The church was still persecuted. And in Paul's absence, they were browbeaten, really, with ideas from outside. Ideas such as, Paul's not a legitimate teacher. Paul is deceiving you with this message. He, he's only out for his own good. He's not out for your good. You've got these ideas coming into the church from the outside. And some of the Jews even followed Paul to other towns to harass him, but others stayed behind to harass the believers there in their own city. They did not like the fact that there was now this church and that there was now this, this, these people and they were not turning away from the message Paul preached. They were not turning away from this idea that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. So to attack the church, they thought, well, Paul's not here to defend himself. Let's discredit Paul. And, and you can imagine how if they were relentless in their bad-mouthing Paul, just you know, kind of throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks, eventually some in the church might just start to wonder and, and, and kind of give in to the doubt, that kind of doubting of the truth that comes when you're just browbeaten with lies. And, and we see this line of attack in our culture all the time today. You know, if we just go back to the Sunday school lesson this morning, the Bible is very clear that we are sinners from conception. And we sin just as soon as we're able to. Again, no one had to teach any of my kids how to lie or cheat or even steal. They learned this stuff on their own. I learned it on my own. So did you. But we're bombarded, and our children, as we have seen in our Sunday school lesson, are bombarded even from a very young age that you are a good person. You ought to follow your heart. You ought to follow your dreams. People are by nature good. I hear political talk shows, even people I agree with, talk about the goodness of humanity, and I'm just like, you need to get in your Bible. We see this line of attack on the issue of human sexuality. You know, the church has historically stood upon the Scriptures. Even later on in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that it is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so the church has historically stood upon the truth that man is created in the image of God. Male and female, God created them. So marriage is one man and one woman till death do them part or you know, what God has joined together, let no man separate. But our culture has browbeaten the church with calling evil good and good evil. Following your heart. No fault divorce in the last century. A divorce numbers skyrocketed, became normal even in the church. And now we see the lines are, are being moved again. Decades later after that became normal, 
the lines are moved almost year by year further and further. Marriage is being redefined not just by the law, and it's not God's law, it's, it's, it's man's law. But even the church has become desensitized to issues on homosexuality and other forms of sexual immorality. And, and it's to the point where there are now many in the evangelical community trying to kind of come up with this third way of saying same-sex attraction is not evil. That, that, it, that it can be a good thing as long as you don't act on it. If you don't think that's there, trust me, it's there. And, it, and it's coming even stronger than you might even imagine it could be because many have capitulated and compromised the Word of God. That's why we're saying standing on the promises before we started this sermon because that's what we have to stand upon. The Word of God. And that human sexuality and, 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 and the Disney songs, those are just modern examples. This kind of thing was going on in Thessalonica too. The Jews were, were hammering the people with attacks on Paul because if you discredit the one who brought the message, you discredit the effectiveness of the message. If you discredit the one who brings the message, you discredit the effectiveness of the message. Beloved, the gospel is true today, even if the messenger is faulty. But the effectiveness of gospel preaching is compromised when you discredit the messenger. And we see that happen with pastors who fall out of, who fall out of ministry because of sin. And, and, and we see that all the time. Your ministry with your, the people in your sphere of influence is affected by the way you live your life. If they see hypocrisy in you when you're telling them about Jesus, your effectiveness is compromised. You discredit the power of the gospel. Not the gospel itself, but the power of it. You discredit the Christ of the gospel. And that's what the unbelieving Jews were trying to do. So Paul, in this section we've read, spends a good chunk of here defending his ministry and that of Silas and Timothy. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write these things. So while this is a very real situation in a local first century setting, what we actually see in his defense here are marks of an exemplary ministry. Marks of an exemplary ministry. Because Paul is a great example for us. And the Holy Spirit, again, did feel it necessary to inspire Paul to write about it here. So what we actually see in his defense are some marks of an exemplary ministry. And, and this text breaks into some sections nicely for us, at least the way the New American Standard has translated the Greek. There are three sections marked by the word for. We see that in, in verse 1, verse 3, later on in verse 9. And then the word but. And, and Paul uses the language here to respond to what seems to have been the accusations about him from the Jews. He, he's appealing in part to what the Thessalonians know about him themselves. So let's see the first of these. And, and I'm just going to read the first two verses again. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So the first accusation against Paul was that his preaching was empty, that it was in vain, that it had no purpose, that it was 
of no importance. And that is really almost the default way of dismissing claims of Christianity. It's empty. It's in vain. It's a myth. We hear that today. People say, you expect me to believe some 2,000 year old book? And Paul here argues from the start that these believers in Thessalonica, notice this, knew for themselves that it was the accusations that were empty. They knew for themselves that it was the accusations that were in vain. It was not the gospel message, but it was the accusations that were empty. And Paul appealed to what the Thessalonians already knew about his experience before he'd even come to their town. In Acts 16, he'd been in Philippi. That was a church he helped found. And it was going well. It was going well in Philippi. But then a slave girl with an evil spirit of fortune telling was pestering Paul. And he ended up commanding that the spirit come out of her in the name of Christ. And it did. And, and, and that's good. But that did not make the girl's masters very happy because they were making money off of her. So they seized Paul. They seized Silas. They beat them up. They threw him in jail. And you might remember that an earthquake happened that night and the jailer and his household ended up believing in Christ and being baptized. But Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica Thessalonica right after that, right on the hills of being beaten up in jail for the gospel. Now, a rational man may have expected them to collect themselves, you know, to kind of... Take a, take a powder, take a breather, and then, then go about spreading the gospel, maybe in a little bit smarter way, maybe in a little bit more nuanced way, maybe a little bit safer, maybe in a less offensive way to spread the gospel. But no. For three weeks he was in Thessalonica. In verse 2, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So you might say they didn't learn their lesson. At least not the lesson the world was trying to teach them. But really, they knew there was no lesson to learn here. Their boldness came from their faith in God who had saved them. They knew it was better to offend people and suffer at their hands than to offend God and receive His discipline. Let me repeat that. It is better to offend people People and suffer at the hands of people than to offend God and suffer His discipline. They knew it was worth it to preach a message by which people could be saved rather than shut their mouths and stay safe. That's a lesson we all need to learn. So the, the first mark of an exemplary ministry that we see here is boldness amidst opposition. It's boldness in the midst of opposition. And we must have boldness in the midst of opposition if we are going to be faithful where God has placed us in this world in ministry. We need to remember a verse like 2 Timothy 3, 2 that says, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. If you live faithfully for Jesus, you will encounter opposition. 
If you are a faithful proclaimer of the gospel, you will encounter opposition. Satan, first of all, will come after you. He will come after people around you. He will try to knock you off course. And if you get through that, then the people you're talking to will come at you. And you might have your job threatened. You might have your status in life threatened. But if you are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, you will bear opposition. So will we keep preaching Jesus to others when our friendships are threatened? Will we keep preaching Jesus when our bodies are threatened? Will we keep preaching Jesus when it makes things uncomfortable at family get-togethers? When it hits us at our jobs, when it hits us at our wallets. Paul kept preaching Jesus boldly because he had trusted that God would sustain him. And if not in this life, then in the life to come. Remember, Paul was waiting eagerly for the Son. And that's the approach, that's the mindset that the evangelistic heart of all of Jesus' disciples must have. Because He doesn't call you and I to sit on the sidelines. He doesn't call us to retreat in tough times and shut our mouths in safety. He calls us to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just pastors, not just evangelists, not just missionaries. We're all disciples who need to go. And that leads us to the second accusation against Paul in verses 3 and 4. He says, For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So what's going on here, it seems, is Paul's opponents were trying to convince the church that he was a false teacher, that, that Paul was the false teacher. So he begins in verse 3 saying, For our exhortation, for our exhortation, you might see the word appeal in your translation there. It, it comes from the Greek word parakalesis. And exhortation and appeal are, are fine translations of that word. But I want you to see that, that Paul did not bring the gospel like a sledgehammer upon the people and then run off. He was appealing to them. He was appealing to them, seeking to give them the spiritual help. They so He was trying to help them the most important way he could possibly help them. In fact, the Greek word parakalesis is related to a noun in the Greek, parakaletas, which means helper, which is the word Jesus uses to talk about the Holy Spirit in John 14 and 16. The Holy Spirit is the helper God or Jesus promised. And it's that same kind of help that we are to give to people. Paul brought it uh, to, the, to the city of Thessalonica. He brought not a wrong message, but he brought the only message that helps. You know, we talk about following your heart. We talk about people who are, you know, the, the, the state of the heart and original sin. And, and church, we cannot fall into a trap of trying to help people without giving them the gospel. And it's easy to fall into that trap. It's easy to, to, to be satisfied maybe with meeting someone's material needs or, or maybe even help them emotionally through a tough time. But if those 
physical and emotional needs are not grounded in gospel truth, then what we're doing to help is only temporary. We've got to be carrying the message, the only message that eternally helps. First, he said his exhortation did not come from error. In other words, it was the truth. His message agreed perfectly with that which is the truth. Secondly, his exhortation did not come from impurity. And that word impurity speaks to the times because it deals with sexual impurity, sexual sin. In in pagan religions of those days, it was thought by many that having relations with somebody supposedly close to the gods would make you closer to the gods. Paul's message was not about that. It did not come by way of impurity, by, by way of sexual sins. It also did not come thoroughly by way of deceit, he says. Paul wasn't preaching a message about heaven that would instead lead people to hell. He wasn't telling people, if you just have faith, if you just you have self-esteem, if you just believe that God can, can, can help you achieve your destiny... That was not the message Paul was preaching. There was no false hope. There was no false deceit. There was no, none of that in Paul's gospel. On the contrary, Paul says, but he and Silas and Timothy were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. They weren't seeking to, to please men. They were only seeking to please God. They didn't want to be man-pleasers. They wanted to be God-pleasers. And this wouldn't be the only time Paul was charged with trying to please man either. In Galatians 1, the, the Judaizers in that area, these were people who were trying to convince Christians that you, you believe in Christ, but you still got to follow the law of Moses. Those are the Judaizers. And, and they were accusing Paul of trying to please men. So in Galatians 1, 6-9... through 9, He said, if anyone preaches a different gospel than his, even if it's an angel from heaven, he's condemned by God. He is damned by God. It is literally what he's saying there. The word is anathema. Okay? For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, he says in verse 10. Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. So what we see is that the mark of an exemplary ministry isn't out to please men. It's not out to please men. Beloved, any pastor has to deal with this temptation. And any church has to deal with this temptation. The temptation to please men. Why? Because there's not one of us who doesn't want to see people in here. There's not one of us who doesn't want to see the church grow. And so the temptation comes, let's please, let's find a way to please people just a little bit more so that we can give them the gospel. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Okay? We've got to stand on the promises of God. We've got to have faith that when Jesus says... I will build my church. He meant what he said. He will build his church. There are many ministries out to please men. Around the time of Easter, Resurrection Sunday, you you see a lot of gimmicks. And I'm not necessarily opposed 
to churches having Easter egg hunts or anything. I'm not. That's not. But but there are churches that say, "Come here," and, and there's a hundred thousand dollar or a hundred thousand eggs being dropped from a helicopter, and there's money in, inside some of them, and that's how they choose to draw people, folks. What you win people with is what you win people to. And if you don't win people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not going to be satisfied when the gimmicks are put aside. You've got to win people with the word of God. So God help us if we ever come with anything less than the truth. And God help us if we ever turn away from Him and from the sufficiency of His Word to try to make people happy. Folks, it's not, it's not in our interest to want people to be happy. It's in our interest to see people be saved. To see people find joy. Remember last week I talked about joy does not equal happiness. Happiness is temporary. Happiness changes with our circumstances. Joy does not because it's grounded in Christ. Beloved, it's not our job to make unbelievers happy. It's not our job to make unbelievers comfortable. It's it's our job to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that means loving them enough to do what's best for them. And that's always the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So the mark of an exemplary ministry, the the first one is boldness amidst opposition. The second one is God-pleasing, not people-pleasing. And a third one is found in verses 5 through 7. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So Paul's opponents were attacking him by accusing him of ulterior motives in his ministry. Motives that were... Less than holy, less than pure, less than righteous. They were essentially saying Paul was caring for this church less than sincerely. Okay, So, so Paul counters that by saying, I'm not out using flattering speech. And he flat out rejects that. We never came with flattering speech as you know. You know, there are other places in Paul's letters where it's kind of hinted at, not, not even hinted, it's pretty much said Paul wasn't the greatest public speaker. There were others who were better at public speaking. Maybe others who were more clever with their lines in a pulpit or wherever they were preaching. So Paul, Paul his message was not about flattering speech. They, they'd heard Paul. Their church was founded on the message he preached. They knew he didn't try to win them over with compliments that weren't true. He didn't try to gain favor with them by buttering them up. He didn't try to manipulate them and their emotions to get them to make a decision. Paul probably remembered Psalm 12.3. May Yahweh cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. And why would somebody resort to flattering speech in the first place when trying to minister to others? The next point is why? Greed. Nor with a pretext for greed. Look at verse 5. The word pretext, it means cloak. Paul and Silas and Timothy did not come with greedy motives. In fact, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he says, They labored night and day so they wouldn't be a burden to anyone in the town. 
And actually Paul says something like that again here in verse 9. But they ate no one's bread without paying for it. They, they weren't like today's televangelists who, who preach God's blessing upon your life if you will sow the seed by giving them your credit card number. Okay? They weren't like that. Paul worked with his hands and the Thessalonian believers saw that with their own eyes. They saw the sincerity. And if they doubted, God was also witness. They didn't seek glory from men. They weren't out to be popular. They weren't out to be spiritual advisors to celebrities. They weren't out to, 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 to have influence with people in power. They weren't looking for praise from anyone except for God. Paul was an apostle of Christ. He'd seen the Lord. And Silas and Timothy, they were recognized as apostles of the church, messengers of the church. They could have played the Paul's an apostle card if they wanted to, to gain influence, but they didn't do that. What did they do? Verse 7, We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And it's that word gentle that's key here. Okay? You know, Paul, Paul gets this undeserved treatment, this undeserved reputation as kind of a rigid apostle. Um, there are, there's even a, a large movement out there, and I would not call it a Christian movement, I would call it a, a, a false Christian movement, where there's such a thing as red-letter Christians. It's people who place the words of Jesus up here and we've got to read Paul's words in light of what Jesus has said. Folks, if you ever hear anything like that, run. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible tell us? That all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There's no such thing as, you know what? Whoever put the red ink in some of our Bibles was a fallible human being. The red letters are not more important than the black ones, beloved. In fact, you can argue some places should those letters be black or red. John 3 is one of those places, but that's another story for another day. Folks, Jesus' words of love are not greater than Paul's hard words. Because guess what? Paul wrote words of love too. And Jesus also spoke some very hard words that were really more, even harsher than Paul. Okay? But that reputation for, that reputation for Paul is not deserved. Paul carried a never-ending burden for the churches he helped to plant. And the churches he basically poured out his life into. Go, go read 2 Corinthians 11 this afternoon and get, get a, a snapshot of what Paul gave for the churches on behalf of Jesus Christ. He was often so gentle with them like a nursing mother who doesn't shake the baby or yank the baby around but is very careful. You know, you, you, you don't, you know, we see it in this room now. There's no shaking of babies going on, right? There's tenderness. There's gentleness. And that is what Paul was doing with this church. And he goes on to expound how he felt about them in, in verse 7, verse 8. 
the evidence of His love and sincerity. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. So, so the third part, the third mark of a, an exemplary ministry is sincere affection. Having so found an affection for you. We loved you so much is how the NIV puts it. Which is really good. That verb translated love or affection here means to yearn for. They yearned for this church. They desperately desired for this church. And that's the way we've got to look at the people we minister to. You know, I think sometimes we're satisfied to say, I'm I'm going to talk to them about the gospel. I'm going to invite them to church. And if it doesn't work out that time, then we kind of move on to the next person. We've got to yearn for people. We've got, we got to be prepared to pour our hearts out for people. We've got to woo them with the love of Christ. And what was the love of Christ if sacrificial, life-giving? Beloved, how many people can we say we sacrificially give ourselves for? How many people can we say we, we have an evangelistic yearning for? And I'm not talking about people in general. I'm talking about individuals. How many people can you think of that you yearn for evangelistically? I bet it's a small number, relatively speaking. I know that I've been challenged by that very thought this week. Beloved, how many people do we have a strong love and affection for in the Lord to the point we give sacrificially of ourselves for their spiritual well-being. That is a sincere ministry. That is sincerity of affection. And then verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Those words, labor and hardship, that's servant language. Paul's sincerity is evidenced by his service. And, and, and Paul's using that, that mother metaphor to describe you know, that gentleness, that, oh man, I'm just, but that's only part of the picture. Look at the last three verses and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So now we have the metaphor of a father. And that evokes qualities of biblical manhood that should show up in a sincere ministry. And what are some qualities of biblical manhood that really a man or a woman can embody? Courage. Um, Be courageous. Be strong. And you have to be strong when you're engaging in ministry in a sinful world because there, again, there will be opposition, right? The Thessalonian believers experienced that opposition. Paul experienced that. They, they were witnesses, he wrote, as was God, how devoutly and uprightly and blameless Paul and Silas and Timothy behaved toward the church. They exhorted and encouraged and implored believers to be like a father to children. What does, what does the scripture say about fathers? To train children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To not provoke your sons to wrath. We're not to be provoking unbelievers. We're to be trying to win them. Right? 
What about Hebrews 12? When children get out of line, there is to be appropriate discipline. The Lord Himself is a loving Father, and those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. So, Paul encouraged and implored those believers just like they were His own children. Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So, boldness amidst opposition. God-pleasing, not people-pleasing. A sincere affection walking in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. That's being consumed with the glory of God. You know, Paul did not preach, pray a prayer, raise your hand, walk an aisle, sign a card, and you're safe. He preached a gospel in which you have to exhibit obedient faith like what the disciples, like what the Thessalonians saw in him and what they were to others. Remember what the word church means? Called out ones, right? These Thessalonians were called out by God, called out of the darkness into the light. There's a man by the name of Robert Thomas. I think he's passed away now, but he put it this way in his commentary on this book. He said, and this is really good, the call of God into his kingdom and glory is an incentive to a high quality of life. In other words, these believers had the guarantee of eternal life and glory with Christ because of the call of God upon their lives. That's the gospel promise. And it is motivation to live obediently, worthily, in light of that promise today. Be holy for I am holy. God God has said in Paul's ministry in its boldness amidst opposition, it's God-pleasing, it's truthfulness, it's sincerity, Amen. <laughs> Here's what we got to remember. You know, as we talk about wanting to see the church grow, it can't be for us. It can't be for our sake. It must be for God's glory. And it must be for the sake of those to whom He calls us to minister. We need to examine our hearts. Paul wrote in verse 4, God examines our hearts. We must make sure before God that we who believe, we who have been called out by God, we need to be sure that we are living the kind of exemplary lives, the kind of that we are exhibiting the qualities here of an exemplary ministry. Bold in God, pleasing to God, Sincere before God to the glory of God. Is this the way you're living? If you don't know Christ this morning, maybe, maybe, you, maybe I'm saying these things, maybe you're looking at your copy of God's Word, maybe you're just hearing it. And you say, my life's not like this. My life's nowhere like this. It could be you don't know Christ. It could be, it could be you're among those that God would say, I don't know you. Well, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, God will know you. It will be because God has, what does it say in verse 12? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And I'm praying God's calling you even today if that's you. Now I know 
as far as I can, because I'm not God, so this is only as far as I can, I know that most of you do know Christ. Is this the way you're living your life? Beloved, we need to be challenged by the Word of God to live according to the Word of God. Are you bold in God? Are you pleasing to God? Are you sincere before God? And are you living for His glory? Let's pray. I've got no song today, so we're just going to pray. And I'll give you time to to pray. Father, may the marks of Paul's ministry mark ours as well. Cause us, Father, to rest in your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us confidence in your power to be bold for you, even when we face opposition. And, And Father, help us to understand that opposition can come from even the people who are closest to us. The stakes are not small here, Father. The stakes can impact every facet of our lives. But all the same, we need to be confident and bold, even when we're opposed. Sometimes, even as Christians, we don't live to please you. We, we need to, though, Father. Give us a focus to please you and not the world. Give us sincerity. Take away any double-mindedness in us. Because you are the one, Father, who's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So, Father, I pray that your glory would resonate in us. May what you've done through us through the gospel of Jesus Christ resonate in us. So that it can't be contained and it radiates from us. If there be anyone here today who doesn't know your glory, I pray they would. Convict us of our sins. Draw us to yourself. Grant us faith to believe. And if we are believing, help our unbelief. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just take a moment to silently pray. I'm here. Scott's here.